to the prophet Daniel, and we'll read the first chapter. Word of God, where it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Asphenes, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table and they were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. The chief official gave them new new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favour and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the the king questioned them, He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Thanks, God.
Well, I, uh, I don't know what your favourite book of the Bible is. I was thinking this week what my favourite book of the Bible is, and I thought, I, I don't know that I can actually choose just one. Uh, and then I chose a few, and then I thought, it just kept, the list just kept getting longer and longer. Uh, I, I don't think I can nail it down to just one favourite. I'm not sure about you. But some of my favourites, if I can say that, are the historical books of the Bible uh, that recount the people of God living in foreign lands. Books like Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther and the book of Daniel. I love them because the situation of the people in those books is very much like the situation in which we live. During the earlier parts of Israel's history, the people lived in a theocracy. That is, they lived in a nation governed by God through God's king, through God's priests and God's prophets. But in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther and Daniel, the people were living under foreign kings and living under foreign powers. And we live in a country which is not a theocracy. That is, it is not a country... Uh, ruled by God's king through God's priests and God's prophets. We live in a country where the government is elected by the people, many of whom uh, do not share our faith in Jesus Christ. And we, like Daniel, need to learn how it is that we can live for God under the rule of other rulers while we wait for God to establish his kingdom through Jesus. You see, Daniel is a book that equips us to live for God while we wait for the return of Jesus. And so I'm excited to be beginning Daniel today because I think it's such an appropriate book for us in our time. Well, Daniel begins with the unthinkable. Verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, sweeps down and attacks uh, He defeats the king uh, at that time, the king of Judah, Jehoiakim, and Nebuchadnezzar even plunders the temple. What's worse, some of the articles that he takes from God's temple, he takes back to Babylon and puts in his own temple, in the temple of his own God. It is, if you like, the ultimate symbol of the humiliation of God's people. But what's so surprising, what's so shocking, in fact, about these verses at the beginning of Daniel is that God is the one who stands behind these events. It's not as though God is absent from what's going on. God's decided to take a holiday and while he's not in town, Nebuchadnezzar comes through and defeats God's people. No, God is the one who stands behind these events. Look at verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. God delivered the king. God even delivered some of the articles from God's own temple into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. 
Why did God do that? Uh, if you've got the handout on your way in, uh, the handout on Daniel, uh, you'll see on the front there's a map of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's assaults on, uh, on Jerusalem, all the way across from Babylonia there in the east. But on the inside, there's a, there's a bit of a timeline of Israel's history. And what is going on here at the beginning of Daniel is actually the beginning of a, of a period of about 70 years in which the people of God would be in exile under foreign rule. You'll see that uh, back in 922 BC, after the death of Solomon, the nation of Israel was split in two, the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. You'll see that 200 years after that, the ten northern tribes, Israel, were taken into exile by Assyria, never to be heard of uh, again. And now in the days of Daniel, Judah was facing the same fate. Uh, if you've got your Bible as well, you might like to turn back to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Chronicles is in the first half of the Bible before Psalms. After Kings uh, and before Ezra and Nehemiah. In 2 Chronicles 36, we get another account of the events at the beginning of Daniel. So, 2 Chronicles 36, from verse 5, Jehoiakim, that's the king that we read about at the beginning of Daniel, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, attacked him and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also took to Babylon articles from the temple of the Lord and put them in his temple there. The other events of Jehoiakim's reign, the detestable things he did and all that was found against him are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiachin, his son, succeeded him as king. Nebuchadnezzar's siege at the beginning of Daniel is actually the beginning of three consecutive assaults uh, and the next is in the next few verses of two chronicles. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In the spring, King Nebuchadnezzar sent for him and brought him to Babylon together with articles of value from the temple of the Lord. And he made Jehoiachin's uncle Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. Then finally in verse 15, Jerusalem falls. So Nebuchadnezzar has come twice, he's taken people and things away. But finally, uh, Jerusalem is utterly destroyed. Verse 15, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. 
He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfilment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. What's going on? Why is this important? It's important because what this means is that Daniel and his friends and their situation in Babylon was not the result of unfortunate circumstances. They weren't victims of fate who did their best in trying times. That's not what's going on in the book of Daniel. Daniel and his friends were there because it was God's plan. God had handed his people over because of their sin. They weren't there by accident. It was God's plan. And similarly, where times might look at our situation, living in a country that doesn't acknowledge God and increasingly seems to acknowledge God less and less, we might look at our world and lament the woeful state of our government and the way that it impinges on our Christian freedom and we might lament how hard it seems to make it for us to follow Jesus. But the reality is we're not here by accident. It's not a mistake. God hasn't been on vacation. It's all part of God's plan. It's God's plan that we are here and it's God's plan that we have the government that we do have. It's also important to realise the background to what's going on in the book of Daniel because it means that the solution to both Daniel's predicament and our predicament is not a new form of government and not a new form of Christian government. God's people had had generations uh, of leaders who were supposedly God-fearing. They'd had king after king. They'd had hundreds of years of kings. And that situation had led them to where they were in Daniel's day. All of those kings had been corrupt in one way or another. It's attractive sometimes, I think, for us to believe that the more Christians that we have in politics, uh, if we were to have a strong evangelical uh, prime minister, if we were to have more Christian business leaders, then that would rescue our society. And when that won't work, we can step away into our own little enclaves uh, ruled by our own systems of government. It's a bit like what the, um, the Mennonites and the Amish have tried to do uh, in North America. It's attractive to believe that better Christians uh, in politics and in significant positions, will rescue our society and our world. But the reality that stands behind Daniel chapter 1 is that they won't. 
Because the problem in our world is not leadership. The problem is sin. Daniel 1 confronts us with the reality that we need a king who can deal with our sin. We need Jesus because Jesus is a king who can deal with the reality of our lives. We need Jesus because we're estranged from God by our sin and Jesus nailed our sin to the cross and has reconciled us to God. And we need Jesus because sin corrupts our society. And Jesus is able to rescue us from the power of sin which corrupts our lives. Well, it was God's plan that Daniel and his friends should be taken to Babylon because God was dealing with Israel's sin. But while God had his own plans, Nebuchadnezzar also had his plans as well. We read in verse 3, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Never has it been so fortuitous to be ugly and stupid. Uh, <laughs> but it was in the days of Daniel. Pity the, uh, the attractive and intelligent young man. But Nebuchadnezzar wants some uh, young people, some noble Israelites, so that he can indoctrinate them into Babylonian customs. It's probably an attempt by Nebuchadnezzar to stave off rebellion. He's depleting the stocks of leadership uh, back in Jerusalem and he's also kind of taking those leaders uh, into his own court, teaching them, uh, indoctrinating them uh, for the future. He has this threefold indoctrination program. They were to be taught the language and the literature of the Babylonians. They were to eat the king's food and they were to be given new names. Now, the literature of the Babylonians was not just novels. It wasn't kind of uh, Jane Austen, kind of the Babylonian Jane Austen and uh, uh, William Shakespeare. Uh, It was intensely religious literature. So it would have included things like Uh, maths and sciences, but also things like omens and magic and astrology. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar also changed their names. The four friends had previously had names that honoured God, so Daniel or Daniel, the ale ending, the L ending, points to God. It's the name of God and it means, Daniel means God is my judge. Uh, Or in the case of uh, Hananiah, Hananiah, Yah, the Yah ending points to Yahweh, the name of God uh, in the Old Testament. And Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious. So they had these names that honoured God and Nebuchadnezzar takes those names away and gives them new names which reflect the Babylonian gods. So Belteshazzar, for example, was Daniel's new name and means either something like, O Lady Ishtar, protect the king. So Ishtar was the wife of Marduk, one of the Babylonian gods. Or may Marduk protect his life. So it's a a name which honours and esteems the Babylonian gods. 
We may not live in a culture where people try and change our names to reflect uh, the names of their gods. You know, they don't come along and call you uh, Richard Dawkins uh, or whoever it might be in the place of your real name. But the underlying principle is still the same. We do live in a culture where people try and replace our Christian identity with another identity, whatever that may be. More often than not, they try and replace our Christian identity with secular humanism. Often it's through the education system. It's pretty likely that Daniel and his friends were only about 14 or 15. We kind of read Daniel, I think, and imagine these people in their mid-20s. They were probably only about 14 or 15. They were teenagers. Nebuchadnezzar took them to indoctrinate them. In our society, teenagers too are taught secular values, secular views of gender and relationships, secular views of finance, secular views of religion, secular views of politics. At university, student teachers are taught secular views on teaching. And so the cycle completes itself. More effective than our education system at educating us is actually art. Art teaches us in a very powerful way. Books, television, films educate people. They tell stories that resonate with people. Shows like uh, Ellen, I don't know if you remember Ellen, shows like Will and Grace did more than anything else, I think, to reshape our society's views uh, on homosexuality. Daniel and his friends were taken to Babylon to be inculcated into the worldview of Babylon, to learn the language and the literature of the Babylonians and to get new names. But the third strand of Nebuchadnezzar's indoctrination program was to offer them food. Seems a strange indoctrination program uh, at first. But Daniel and his friends, while they appear to make no objection to the new names, astonishing really, and they seem to make no objection to the education system, they do object to receiving the king's food. We're told in verse 8, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. The official's reluctant at first. He's afraid he's going to lose his head if the king finds out. But he agrees to this test, this 10-day test. Daniel and his friends will have water and vegetables for, uh, water and vegetables for 10 days, and if at the end of those 10 days they still look okay, they look fit and healthy, then they'll be able to continue on their special diet. We're told in verse 15 that at the end of the 10 days they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Now why would Daniel and his friends eat the royal food? What was the problem? It wasn't let me say, because the food was intrinsically healthier. Uh, There's a fad going around at the moment uh, based on Daniel's dietary advice. So there's a book called Daniel's Diet 
the 10-day detox and weight loss plan. Rick Warren, uh, in fact, has even written a book, The Daniel Plan, 40 Days to a Healthier Life. There's a DVD, there's a study guide, there is a cookbook, and even a journal. I don't know what the journal is for, to be honest, but there is a journal. And the website says this about King Nebuchadnezzar's invitation to eat his food. Daniel knew this wouldn't be a healthy diet, so he asked that he and three of his friends be allowed to eat healthier. And at the end of 10 days, they looked better and were more robust than those who ate the king's menu. Daniel's request was not about a diet plan. Rather, he understood God wanted him to live a healthy lifestyle. But that, I'm afraid, entirely misses the point of what's going on here in Daniel chapter 1. Hopefully it's obvious already from the other two aspects of Nebuchadnezzar's indoctrination plan that the issue was not poor health, but some kind of compromise with Babylon. Now you might think, well, unhealthy eating is a compromise. And yet the things that Daniel and his friends refused to eat were exactly the kinds of things that God encouraged his people to eat at other times. Wine and meat were not taboo in Israel. In fact, wine and meat were very much part of the Passover meal which Jesus celebrated with his disciples. So the issue is not diet. It's not about a healthier lifestyle. There's some suggestion uh, by others that uh, perhaps Daniel wouldn't eat the food because the food was likely to be ritually unclean. God didn't permit his people to eat certain types of animals, like pigs, uh, or to eat uh, meat with the blood still in it. But that doesn't explain why they refused the wine. Uh, in the New Testament, another option is in the New Testament eating food that's been sacrificed to idols is an issue, and some people suggest that that might be the issue that's going on here. Daniel and his friends may not have wanted to participate in the worship of false gods, and so they stayed away from food that might have been offered to false gods. But the best evidence that we have is that the Babylonians more or less offered anything that they had <laughs> to their false gods, not just uh, wine uh, and meat, but vegetables as well, anything. Uh, the Israelites too actually offered grains uh, as part of their, their uh, sacrificial system. So what's the problem? Well, all the way through the chapter, the focus is not on what kind of food they're eating, but on where it comes from. You see, it's the king's food. Every time it's mentioned almost, it's called food from the king. The problem seems to be that to accept the king's food was to demonstrate some kind of allegiance and to risk becoming overly dependent or to risk coming into some kind of sense of obligation to the king. In chapter 11, uh, there's a verse where the same uh, kind of description of food is used, where there's this surprise that a king who ate, that this man who ate at the king's table would, uh, 
would then go and attack the king. The problem, as one writer puts it, is the defilement that Daniel feared was not so much a ritual as a moral defilement arising from the subtle flattery of gifts and favours which entailed hidden implications of loyal support. We know the idea, right? A developer takes a politician to lunch. The Olympic Bid Committee showers the IOC with gifts. Or the movie plot, you know, where the mafia boss does the struggling businessman a favour. And at first it seems like a generous offer. Only later they discover that what has happened is that they've become entwined in this relationship where there are strings attached. It looks like a gift, but there's a sense of obligation. Whether in politics or in the Christian life, receiving gifts like this is often the pathway to compromise. Daniel knew that. He knew that he could eat the king's food, but the danger would be the sense of obligation, real or imagined, to do whatever the king wanted. It's an area, I think, that we need to give careful thought to. I suspect that in the coming years, it will be in precisely this area where compromise will face the church. I suspect the next step in the present push uh, towards uh, anti-discrimination legislation to normalise homosexuality and alternative gender identities, I suspect the next step will come as a string attached to funding or accreditation. So churches which presently receive um, special tax status, that tax status will become dependent on signing uh, a clause which says we are a non-discriminating organisation. And if you don't sign the paper, you won't get the benefits. Schools will not receive their accreditation if they don't sign the form which says we are a non-discriminating organisation. They won't get the government money or the government grants if they don't sign the form that says we are a non-discriminating organisation. And it will be so hard for people to give up the money that they've become so used to. We've eaten at the king's table. And we can't give it up. And I suspect that many people that we thought were good, solid Christian people will urge us to compromise in ways that we had never expected. What's so interesting, I think, about Daniel chapter 1 and Nebuchadnezzar's three-pronged indoctrination program is that it was only the food that Daniel objected to. Extraordinary, isn't it? They had new names which honoured Babylonian gods and they didn't bat an eye. I mean, what could they do, really? If the king wanted to call them Belteshazzar, 
That was the king's prerogative. They sat under the Babylonian education system. They were taught about Babylonian astrology and Babylonian gods. And they dutifully sat through the classes. But when it came to the risk of compromise, through this sense of obligation, Daniel and his friends would have nothing to do with it. The food which seemed so innocent on the surface held within it the subtle power of corruption which could destroy the people of God. It was God's plan that his people would end up in exile. It was Nebuchadnezzar's plan to corrupt the people and indoctrinate them into Babylonian practices. But unbeknownst to Nebuchadnezzar, he was actually forwarding God's plan as well. It was God's plan to install in the very top of Babylon's government faithful Israelites for the preservation of God's people. God is at work all through this chapter. He hands the people over to Nebuchadnezzar, but God also softens the heart of the chief official. Verse 9, now God caused the official to show favour and sympathy to Daniel. God gave them success on their restricted diet. God gave them extraordinary abilities and understanding. Verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. They were so gifted, we're told, that Nebuchadnezzar could find no better advisors in the whole kingdom. You see, God at work all through this chapter. And so you get to the end of the chapter and you read the most remarkable fact in verse 21. And Daniel remained there, we're told, until the first year of King Cyrus. The first year of King Cyrus may not mean a great deal to you, but to people living after Daniel's day, Israelites living after Daniel's day, that was a significant year because the first year of King Cyrus is the year that Cyrus commanded or allowed the people of God to return to Jerusalem. It's the last date recorded in the book of Chronicles and it's the first date recorded in the book of Ezra. In the first year of King Cyrus, Cyrus made the decree that the Israelites could return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. You see, what God is saying in Daniel chapter 1 is this. He's saying that from the very beginning of the exile until the very end, God's people were next to the seat of power. For that entire period, under foreign rule, Daniel remained in the king's palace in one form or another for that 70 years. Four or five kings came and went, but Daniel was there the whole time. Daniel was in Babylon. God's people were in exile. Nebuchadnezzar was their human king, but God was still in control. We may not be in Babylon, but we have human rulers and human kings, and yet God is still in control. We have human rulers and human kings who do not acknowledge God, and yet God is still in control. 
Daniel 1 isn't an ironclad guarantee. God's not promising in Daniel chapter 1 that there will always be Christians of influence in the halls of power. But it is a pattern that we see repeated in the Bible. Joseph in Egypt. Esther, the ultimate Miss Persia winner who saved a nation. Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king. It's a pattern we see repeated in our own world. Earlier this year, out of nowhere, Barry O'Farrell, the New South Wales Premier, resigned. And in the space of three days, Mike Baird, a solid, respectable, evangelical Christian, became the Premier of New South Wales. Mike Baird's father, Bruce Baird, was a significant politician during the Howard government. And even from the backbench, together the two other people, was responsible for bringing children out of immigration detention. The recently appointed chief executive of the National Australia Bank is also a solid evangelical Christian. The New South Wales Police Commissioner, Andrew Scipioni, is a committed Christian. The former Chief of Defence, Peter Hurley, was a committed Christian. The Managing Director of the ABC, Mark Scott, is a committed Christian. None of these people are the Messiah who will put the world right or fix Australia. But aren't they an encouragement to know that God hasn't deserted his people? We may live in a broken world and we may look at our government and despair, but in God's grace, God has raised up these people, not to rescue the world from sin, but maybe just to make the waiting a little bit easier. We can look out at the direction of our country in panic and the temptation in the panic can be to compromise, to eat from the king's table. But we're not here by accident. God is still in control and Jesus is coming back. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are the King, that you reign even now through Jesus Christ. And we long for that day when all the world will be brought uh, under the powerful rule of Christ and be seen to be under the powerful rule of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us while we wait for Jesus' return to wait patiently and to wait well. Lord, keep us from compromise. Give us eyes to see the dangers that surround us. Give us wisdom to endure the things that we need to endure. Help us to rejoice and to celebrate those people that you raise up for the good of your people and for the good of the world. But Lord, help us to wait and to keep waiting in faith, knowing that you have not deserted us, 
but that one day Jesus will return and we will see him crowned in glory and honour and splendour. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.